Good evening, and welcome to our humble abode here at the National Building Museum. My name is Chase Rand, and I have the honor of being the executive director at the National Building Museum. And it's my pleasure to welcome all of you this evening to the 2014 Daniel Burnham Forum on Big Ideas, Private Capital, Public Good. And we are delighted to be the venue for this forum and proud to be a partner with the American Planning Association to present it to you. The museum has formed a valuable partnership with the APA, which includes producing the annual L'Enfant Lecture on City Planning and Design, highlighting critical issues in city and regional planning in the United States. The APA is also a valued member of the museum's Capital Council for the Built Environment. The Capital Council comprises exceptional leaders who determine and influence the quality of our built world, not only here in Washington, D.C., uh, the, the Washington, D.C. region, but also nationally and internationally. These partners are essential in helping fulfill the museum's mission to advance the quality of the built environment by educating people about its impact on their lives. So again, we thank the APA for its support of this program and for all of its planning and sustainability initiatives. And now allow me to introduce to you William Anderson, FAICP, and president of APA. William Anderson integrates development economics and planning, having worked in 20 states and eight countries as a partner with Economics Research Associates, which is now part of AECOM. Anderson focuses on inner cities, community planning, and regional planning. He headed up San Diego's oldest planning advocacy group and chaired San Diego's planning commission, helping formulate the City of Villages strategy. Anderson served as director of San Diego's City Planning and Community Investment Department between 2006 and 2011, where he oversaw planning, economic development, urban form, and facilities financing. He was inducted into the AICP College of Fellows in 2006. Please welcome William Anderson. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, isn't this a fabulous building? I noticed it was dedicated by Grover Cleveland in, uh, in the uh, last, last century uh, when the U.S. population was only uh, 61 million. So um, we've grown quite a bit since then uh, in a lot more buildings. Um, I want to thank the National Building Museum. Uh, the forum is only one part of a broader and long-standing partnership that APA has with the museum. And APA applauds the museum for outstanding exhibits and events that bring planning issues to the public uh, and planning with our colleagues in other disciplines related to the built and the natural environment. Uh, welcome to the latest installment of APA's Burnham Forum on Big Ideas. Uh, this program was launched in 2012 to provide periodic venues for thought leaders to discuss the important trends and topics shaping our cities, our country, and our globalized world. This is the third consecutive year in which the Burnham Forum will kick off APA's Policy and Advocacy Conference at the National Building Museum. I would like to acknowledge the APA Board and AICP Commission, so if you're not a member, please stand up. Uh, no, okay. If you're a member, please stand up.
Tonight's topic will be the, the growing importance of the private sector and its investment and in the involvement of philanthropic organizations in how our cities and towns grow, operate, and invest and plan. We will look at both the enormous opportunities and the long-term impacts and challenges. Today's fiscal and political realities mean that the private and philanthropic sectors are ever more important to projects and investments that benefit the public and build communities. This is a trend seen in fast-growing communities, as well as places that are struggling to reinvent themselves and restore prosperity. As a policy matter, it is reflected in programs and debate at all levels of government, and planning is very much a partner in that debate. We will begin with opening remarks from Congressman John Delaney, and then we will engage in a discussion with a panel of experts with firsthand involvement in integrating the private and the public sector for these public ends. Let me begin by introducing one of Washington's foremost leaders on infrastructure investment, housing issues, and restoring a too often polarized and gridlocked Congress. Congressman John Delaney represents Maryland's 6th District. He knows this issue from the perspective of both a policymaker and a businessman, since he is the only former CEO of a publicly traded company serving in Congress. He has distinguished himself quickly on Capitol Hill as a legislator interested in tackling hard challenges, like sustainability and responsibly funding infrastructure to reforming the housing finance market in a thoughtful, bipartisan fashion. His signature initiative, the Partnership to Build America Act, is notable as the most bipartisan economic bill pending in Congress. It is also a prime example of the issue at the center of tonight's forum. So it's my pleasure to welcome Congressman John Delaney. Thank you, William, for that uh, very nice introduction. And it's nice to see everyone uh, this afternoon. Hope everyone had a nice weekend. Uh, for those of you who traveled into Washington, our weather is not always this beautiful uh, on the weekends. It was really a perfect weekend, I think. <clears throat> and it's great to be in beautiful buildings like this, because beautiful buildings and beautiful structures are, uh, serve a uh, very useful purpose, not only what their specific purpose is, but they remind us that we can actually do great things, uh, because building uh, beautiful structures like this uh, are an example of, of what we can do if we work together. And I was, I, was com I was thinking about your, uh, the, the comment on your slide that is now down uh, that said uh, private capital, public good. And it is an area that I care a lot about directionally because I did spend most of my career in the private sector prior to running for office. And the one thing that I always observed when I traveled, and I had the opportunity to travel around the world extensively as part of my business career, Whenever you saw a high-performing economy, an economy with above-average growth rate and an economy that's creating jobs, particularly jobs that have very good standard of living, the one thing those economies all had in common, no matter where they were located, is a very constructive relationship between the private sector and the public sector. 
because when the private sector and the public sector work together for the common good of the citizens, you really get very, very good economic outcomes in particular. And when they're in opposition, <clears throat> which is what we unfortunately find ourselves uh, too often, I think, in this country, uh, particularly lately, you end up with suboptimal economic outcomes, which is what we're experiencing right now as a, as a nation. So thinking about strategies for the private sector and the public sector to work well together uh, is, is, in my judgment, very smart public policy. Also, if you look <clears throat> kind of at a, a macro high level about kind of fiscal flexibility, right now the federal government, many states and many cities around this country uh, lack fiscal flexibility. You know, we're recovering from a very, very significant kind of epic uh, recession, uh, hopefully once in our lifetimes. Uh, you know, we have some very difficult demographics going on in the nation that are undeniable. And a lot of good things are happening in terms of how long people are living and how uh, innovation has affected medicine and the ability to take illnesses that used to be, a, you know, kind of acute killers and turn them into chronic illnesses. We save children at very young age. All these things have put enormous pressure on, on budgets, both at the federal and state level. Yet at the same time, if you look at what's happening in the private sector, largely because of how well our country is positioned in a global and technology-enabled world, right? I actually think the hand that United, the United States has from an economic perspective has in many ways never been stronger. Largely because of that, U.S. corporations are piling up cash at record rates. There's more cash in the coffers of U.S. corporations than there's ever been both on an absolute basis, but more importantly on a relative basis, relative to the size of the economy. And obviously for a whole variety of reasons, there's great wealth being created in this country, mostly due to some of the macro trends in the world. I mean, we're living in, in a world of great change. You know, when I graduated from high school 30 years ago, there were five or five and a half billion people in the world, and about a billion of them were interconnected, right? Today there's seven billion people, and five billion of them are interconnected. And at the same time, computing power has grown over a millionfold. This has created an opportunity, a very, very positive dynamic for the world. I mean, during the same period of time, 30 years ago, about 70% of the nations in the world were considered impoverished. Today, that's about 20 or 22%. So this has been enormously beneficial, these trends. And it's also created a lot of wealth and concentrated a lot of wealth in many ways that are troubling for a lot of people. And with good reason, because it's carved out a lot of jobs not only here, but around the world. But all of this has created an opportunity where there's a lot of uh, capital sitting in the hands of US corporations. And in fact, there's a lot of capital sitting in the hand of, of, of individuals. So thinking of good public policy where you can actually take private sector capital and put it against what has traditionally been viewed as a public sector uh, engagement I think is really, really smart public policy because I think it'll be a, a, a win for governments because it'll alleviate some of the uh, burdens that governments have traditionally been uh, in a position to bear but are not in a position to bear today. It'll be good for the citizens because they'll get the benefit of the increased investment in services that they typically look to the government for. And I think it'll spur even greater innovation in the public sector. So I think the kind of things you're talking about here today are incredibly important from a public policy perspective. So the real question is, how do you do it? 
To do it successfully, I think elected officials have to do two things differently uh, than what they've done the last 10 or 20 years. First of all, they have to think a little differently about the world because I, I know the, uh, many of the people here are in the planning business. I really like the term planning because it involves that you're actually thinking strategically about where things are going. Those of you who are involved in urban planning and, and things like that actually have a view, an evolving view of where the world is going, where your city is going, where your community is going, and you're trying to plan for that future. Not enough of that goes on in the federal government. We're actually not as a federal government, in my opinion, having the correct national conversation right now. The national conversation we're having is the classic tax and spend conversation. That's an important conversation to have, certainly, but it's actually not really what's most important for our economy. What's most important for our economy is to figure out how we take these trends, these macro trends of globalization and technology, and bend them to benefit more Americans. And there's ways of doing that, in my opinion, but it takes some strategy and some planning. So the first thing we have to do as elected officials actually to take advantage of the opportunities is to actually think a little differently about what's going on, what our problems are, and where the opportunities are. And then the second thing, and most importantly, we have to start behaving differently, right? Because the right answer to so many of these solutions is a combination of really good ideas that, ideas that both progressives have and conservatives have, and mixing these things together, not mushing them together in some kind of moderate mumbo-jumbo that doesn't really make any sense, but taking the best ideas from both sides and figuring out how to combine them in good public policy is also what I think we need to be doing as a nation. And that's one of the things we tried to do with the Partnership to Build America Act, which is the bill that I'm going to talk about, which is a large-scale infrastructure effort that, that has garnered tremendous bipartisan support. We've got almost 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans on the bill in the House and the Senate, which, for those of you who follow Capitol Hill, realize that that's unheard of in economic policy. Right? There's a bunch of bipartisan things we do around supporting our veterans, as we should, around naming post offices and things like that, but there's very, very little bipartisan economic policy that's being done. Right? And, and the reason for that is the parties are caught in this kind of tax and spend. Like, if you raise taxes and grow government, everything will be fine, or if you cut taxes and shrink government, everything will be fine, when in reality what we really need to be doing is thinking about what I was saying earlier, which is where's the world going? Where is rapid technological innovation and increased global interconnection, which is totally disrupting the workforce and creating enormous number of opportunities and creating wealth and lifting people out of poverty and hurting the middle class? How do we create a strategy so that the benefits of that can be most broadly shared? And it seems to me one of the things we needed to do is increase our investment in infrastructure. And I know everyone in the room, this has been something obvious to you for a long time. But the case for increasing our investment in infrastructure is really strong. First of all, we need it. You've seen all the studies about the trillions of dollars of underinvestment we have in infrastructure. The second thing is if you talk to people who are competitiveness experts, who really think and plan and strategize like you do about how the United States of America competes in this global and technology-enabled world, they will tell you one of the most important things for us to do is to have world-class infrastructure. Roads, bridges, but it's an energy grid that needs to be rebuilt. It's communications, particularly in rural communities. Uh, it's the water system that's collapsing. It's even, uh, it's even educational facilities. So increasing that investment is really, really important for our competitiveness. It turns out, if you look at the data, it's an incredibly good investment. 
It's one of the best investments governments make in terms of every dollar they spend, how much economic growth they get. It's about $1.92 in economic growth for every dollar that's spent on infrastructure, one of the best investments the government makes. And it also puts a lot of people to work with good jobs. Again, as we talked about, that dynamic that's going on in the world is causing us to create a lot of high-skilled, high-paid jobs, right? which is why the top is growing so uh, significantly, if you will. And it's also causing us to create a lot of low-skilled, low-paid jobs. And the problem with low-skilled, low-paid jobs is people typically need two of them or three of them, which totally disrupts communities and the way people live. They can't read to their kids because they're always going from one low-paid job to the next. But what we're not doing is creating these middle-skilled, middle-class jobs in this country. And the data clearly uh, proves this point. The nice thing about infrastructure is it actually creates those type of jobs. So if you actually think we need a jobs program in this country, which I personally believe we do, until the benefits of globalization and technology can start being more evenly spread, which I actually believe they will, if you actually think we need a jobs program, we should have a 50-state national infrastructure strategy. And I believe it can be very bipartisan and very broadly supported by the American people. It's, it should be bipartisan because it's always been bipartisan, and it should be broadly supported by the American people because if you actually ask the American people what the government is good at, and right now the American people have a somewhat cynical view of the government's competency in a lot of areas, infrastructure still is something that the American people believe the government is highly competent in doing. So for all these reasons, competitiveness, it's a really good investment, it puts people to work, infrastructure should be, in my judgment, the top domestic economic priority for this country. Put differently, instead of doing the stimulus we did uh, six years ago, which was $900 billion and about $100 billion towards infrastructure, if we would have done a trillion and a half dollar stimulus, right, spent more money, and had the overwhelming majority of it allocated towards infrastructure, I'm almost certain that the economic growth would be higher than it is right now, the fiscal flexibility of the country would be greater, and we'd be actually creating jobs that have a better profile from a standard of living perspective. And that's why I think this is so important to do. So one of the things I wanted to do is come up with an infrastructure initiative that could get us back in the groove of working on a bipartisan basis to do smart infrastructure investments, planning, et cetera, from the federal perspective. And so, <clears throat> as someone who comes from the private sector, one of the first things I said is, if we're going to spend a lot of money on infrastructure, which I know is not going to be that popular with my Republican colleagues, right, because the environment has kind of trained them to say no to that kind of stuff, uh, where can we go to get the money as opposed to having the federal government do it? And then you go back to what I said earlier, which is this huge amount of money sitting in U.S. corporations. So we were like, we should come up with good public policy that allows that private sector cash to flow against infrastructure. And when we did our work further, we realized that almost half of the cash sitting in U.S. corporations sits overseas. Right, so there's about $2 trillion of U.S. corporate cash sitting internationally right now. And that's the, the reason you're hearing all these discussions about inversions and things like that. And the reason all that cash that's overseas is because we have a unique international tax system in this country where we effectively tax U.S. corporations twice on their overseas earnings. They pay tax where they earn the money. So if Starbucks is running a bunch of coffee shops in Germany, they pay German tax right, on the earnings in Germany. 
And then when, when they repatriate, or if they decide to repatriate the money back to the United States, they have to pay a differential up to U.S. corporate income tax. Most uh, countries that we compete with have something called a territorial system, which means when you pay tax in the international market where you're doing business, you can repatriate the money back to the homeland tax-free. And the, per the point of those systems is to allow their companies to compete on a level playing field with the foreign corporations. Again, we're the only country in the world that doesn't have a system like that uh, that, we, that, we, that we consider ourselves competitors with. And so that's creating, that's creating a situation where this money's not flowing back. And that's a real problem, I think, for our country because we'd be much better off if $2 trillion that sits overseas were back in the United States, no matter what the companies did with it. Obviously, if they made investments, it would be great for us, but even if they increased their dividends to their shareholders, that would create wealth in the country and allow us to, uh, allow us to grow the economy. And so we thought it would be really good public policy if we could figure out a way to unlock some of that capital from overseas, bring it back to the United States, at the same time we increase infrastructure investment. So we came up with a bill called the Partnership to Build America Act, which launches something called the American Infrastructure Fund, which is designed to be a very large, very flexible, long-term infrastructure financing capability only to serve states and local governments. In other words, not to be kind of a federal pot of money, but to be a dedicated fund for states and local governments. And the way we envision the American Infrastructure Fund being capitalized is not by the US government putting the money in, but by private companies putting the money in. And the way they put the money in is they buy bonds, and the bonds they buy pay 1% interest, have a 50-year term, and are not guaranteed by the federal government. So they're a bond that no one would normally buy, but we say that for every dollar of these bonds a U.S. corporation buys, they get the right to repatriate a certain amount of their overseas earnings back to the United States tax-free. And the ratio is determined by an auction mechanism that we set up in the bill. It's, we, we believe it'll be about four to five to one. So if a big U.S. company buys a billion of these bonds, they get the right to bring four to five billion back to the United States tax rate, right? And so what we've done is we've fused together, not mushed or, 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 or diluted, but fused together two ideas that each party has been pushing for for a long time. My Democratic colleagues and I, for a long time, have been saying we need to increase our investment in infrastructure. It's a good investment, it'll make us more competitive, and it'll put people to work, and it's exactly what we need to do today. And we've been 100% right about that. My Republican colleagues have been rightly looking at the international tax system and saying this is a real problem. This wasn't a problem 30 years ago when large U.S. corporations made 10% of their money overseas and they had nothing to do with it, so they brought it back and paid the tax. But now, they're clearly, they're making about $175 billion to $180 billion overseas collectively and they're bringing back a small fraction of that, right? And they've been saying we need to do things to fix this, right? And there's a certain tax that these companies would pay to bring it back, but the tax we're charging them right now is just too much. And they've been right about that. They've been 100% right about that. It's been a real problem that we haven't been able to do that. And we're seeing it now in its worst form, right? It's been a problem for a long time because that money hasn't coming back, but now these companies want to reincorporate internationally, right? They, and they're not doing it for the tax rate. This whole thing about the U.S. corporate tax rate, the driver of these inversions, it's just not true, right? That's a simpler argument. The real reason they're doing it is because of this. Pfizer, the first company that announced that they were going to do it, they had $90 billion of cash overseas. If they would have brought that money back to the United States, 
they would have had to pay $25 billion tax. If they would become a UK company, they could bring the $90 billion back to the United States tax-free. I mean, how strange is that? But that's what's really going on. So we brought together these two ideas, these two really good pieces of public policy that each side had been pushing for, and created one piece of legislation around it. And as a result, it's gotten really strong bipartisan support, not just the almost 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans in the House, and it's also in the Senate. We introduced it in the House uh, about a year ago, and it was introduced in the Senate a couple months ago. But we've got 60 outside groups who have supported it. We've got think tanks on each side of the aisle that have supported it. We've got trade unions that have supported it. We've got business groups that have supported it. This has really deep, deep, by editorial boards of major newspapers have written about it, being supportive of it. But it's an example. We actually can get some smart things moving in Washington if, A, we actually acknowledge that each side may have some interesting perspectives on some of these ideas. And rather than coming to the table saying, we're just going to do an infrastructure spending bill, which, trust me, I would vote for, right, for the reasons I said. I don't actually think, even though under the dumb way we account for things in the federal government, spending money on infrastructure creates no economic growth in CBO scoring, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard, I would vote for it because we need to put people to work, and I don't believe the CBO numbers. I think it will create economic growth, and it won't score as badly as people say it will. But I know in the environment we have right now, my Republican colleagues won't vote for that. Just like a bill to fix the international tax system, which we should do, right? It wouldn't get a lot of Democratic support right now, because what the Democrats want to do is kind of just attack the companies for inverting. Listen, I don't like the companies inverting any more than anyone else does, but we got to get at the systemic cause of the inversion, not just try to close a loophole, because guess what? They'll figure another way to do it, because that's the way private market works. So those are the kind of things that I'm trying to do. I've got a similar kind of framing for housing finance reform that, again, is bringing together elements that each side uh, has been talking about for a while. I know your next panel has uh, a discussion about social impact bonds and, and uh, pay for success. One of my colleagues, uh, Republican from Indiana, Todd Young, and I have uh, co-authored and co-sponsored the, uh, the, the, really, the only piece of legislation in the Congress dealing with social impact bonds and pay for success. So everything I'm trying to do is, is trying to deal with a consequential uh, issue around this notion of how do we increase the competitiveness of the country in light of this global and technology-enabled world, while at the same time, how do we make sure all of our kids, and our workforce for that matter, are prepared to get the jobs that hopefully a more competitive United States creates. So I'm trying to work on issues that are against that larger theory of the case, come up with innovative solutions, which also often involves blending really what I call best ideas from each side of the aisle, right, the best ideas from the progressive movement, which there are a lot, and the best ideas from the conservative movement, which there are a lot as well, blending those together and only working in a bipartisan basis, which is what uh, I've dedicated myself to doing uh, on the, uh, in the U.S. Congress. And you know, it's working. I think part of the reasons it's working is because we're very optimistic uh, about not only the solutions we're putting forth, but the trajectory of the country. I mean, any way you look at the facts, the facts favor the optimist in terms of how well this country is positioned, right? And, or how much progress has occurred in this country and around the world for the last 30 years. I know people like to shine a spotlight on the negative. Think about what I said earlier. 30 years ago, 
75% of the nations of the world were considered impoverished. Today, that number is close to 20, 22%. Think about that in terms of human beings, the billions of human beings that have been lifted out of abject poverty around the world in the last 30 or 40 years. So to think that the world is somehow a worse place now, or that all this innovations or interconnectivity, which is causing all kinds of stress, all the stuff that's going on in the world right now, in my opinion, is the world wrestling with a level of interdependence and interconnection that it never had to deal with before. But it's all really positive, right? And, but it could be more positive if we actually came together, had an honest discussion of the problem. I used to say in the private sector that you can't solve a problem until you can describe it. We're actually not doing a really good job right now having a national conversation around what the problem is. Because I think we had that conversation. The spread between the solutions narrows quite a bit. And you can actually start moving forward with good public policy. And, but you know this as well as anyone, because most of you work in, in local government, from what I understand, working on planning issues, which are the things that are really important to human beings today and human beings of the future. And so you spend a lot of time thinking about where the world is going. So many of us benefit because of your foresight right into thinking about trends, macro trends and patterns and how people live and how they want to live in the future. And you do really, really smart work, but you're thoughtful, you look at facts, you look at data, you have an honest conversation, you know, you cut some deals, you take some good ideas from people on each side and you move forward. And that's what really has to happen uh, more in the Congress of the United States. So it's really nice for you to have me here uh, this this afternoon, I guess this evening, probably I started in the afternoon, I'm gonna end in the evening, um, in this beautiful setting. And I really admire what, what you all do. And uh, I hope you know and would trust directionally that what we're doing is, is trying to be additive to what you're doing. Because a couple of smart people, you know, the federal government doesn't have to do many things, it just needs to do a couple things much better and much bigger, right? And infrastructure, infrastructure more than anything else. If we did it bigger at the federal government, I think the states and local governments could be empowered and enabled in a way that could really start bending the curve on some of these employment trends that I'm so concerned about. Because again, if you really look at what's happening in the country, there is this coming apart based on the type of jobs we're creating. And unless we can really get more of this middle-skilled, middle-class job creation machine going again, we're gonna end up in a very different country uh, than it used to be, and it'll become less a country of opportunity and more a country of birthright, unfortunately. And I think that should be a worry for everyone, at every, uh, no matter what their perspective is. So it's a great privilege to be here. Uh, it's a great privilege to serve the country. God bless, and I'd be happy to answer any questions people have. Thank you. Congressman, that you may have to leave uh, another engagement. Uh, so now would be the time to uh, ask questions of uh, Congressman Delaney. I do have to say, um, I know you were uh, coming through California uh, earlier in the year, and uh, and meetings were arranged in San Diego. And it was interesting. This idea was uh, brought together planning advocates, Chamber of Commerce, uh, people interested in affordable housing. Uh, jobs, 
how to do um, uh, infrastructure more sustainably. It truly was a bipartisan approach and, and applaud you for um, bringing um, the people together, uh, especially in these days. Um, do we have some questions about for Congressman Delaney? Back, see in the back? Just come to the microphone, please. Congressman Delaney, my name is Lee Schoenecker. Does the mechanism whereby the money would go to state and local governments, <coughs> is that somewhat similar to the old revenue sharing, but for infrastructure? The revenue sharing of maybe 30 years ago, where monies went from the U.S. Treasury out to state and local governments, is that basically the same type of mechanism that you're talking about? It's a really good question because in a way it is because effectively what we're doing with our mechanism is we're telling U.S. corporations, buy these bonds that you would never buy that are only worth 20 cents on the dollar because that's what we think they're worth. So spend a billion dollars on a bond that the next day is worth $200 million and they'll probably all sell them and lose that amount of money. And be, because you bought that bond, you get this, this ticket that allows you to bring back a certain amount of your money from overseas tax work. And when you do the math on all that stuff, we're, we're really charging them a 10% tax. It's not a tax because it's a cost on this. We, we get this big fund that they put the money in. Their tax, if you will, is putting in that money that they would never do because we want that money to be really cheap. We want it to be free money, basically. And, so, and then we're saying that that money is just available to the states. So some would say, your question's a good one, some would say in a very nuanced way what we're doing is we're allowing companies to bring the money back from overseas, uh, we're, we're telling them to pay a tax, a, lo a lower tax than they pay right now, because uh, they're not bringing it back right now, and then we're giving that money to the states to build infrastructure. And, and, and you know, now that I've said that, because I've never really connected the dots, I have no problem with that, because I actually think that's pretty good public policy. Uh, but but you could say that's what we're doing. Follow up. Did you say states or states and local governments? Uh, both. There's a, it's complicated allocation formula. Every state basically gets an allocation, and then their lo local governments can apply directly, uh, or the state can apply. Either we let either apply. Who would administer the funds? It's got an independent. Well, it'll be around for 50 years. This entity, so it's going to be around a long time. So we think it'll be a big, substantial enterprise. And it's got an independent board that is initially appointed uh, by the president and the Congress, bipartisan. And then the successive, there's term limits, and then successive board members are appointed by the board itself. So it kind of lives on its own. It, it's basically, a, it's set up as a nonprofit with an independent board. I think of it as the Red Cross of infrastructure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yeah, and it's not even, it's not an obligation of the federal government. Basically what we'll do is we'll set up a special purpose authority uh, and it will issue the bonds. So it's gonna be called the American Infrastructure Fund, which the government will launch it. And it'll be a nonprofit. And then it'll issue these bonds. But the, the full faith and credit of the United States is not on the bonds. So when someone buys these bonds, they're not buying a government guaranteed bond, which is why they're, they're not worth much. Uh, well, look, at they're 50-year 1% bonds, not government guaranteed. 
right now you can buy 30-year government-guaranteed bonds at a higher rate of interest. So that puts into perspective how we think they're worth at most 20 cents on that. We're basically getting corporations to put in free capital. But it's not free. To, I mean, you're not giving the money away. They're saying, okay, that's great, and so I can get to bring all this money back then as a result. So. Tax credit programs? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hi. Oh. Uh, I was curious, I guess there's a lot of focus in transportation finance on the monetary input as far as, you know, we're discussing how we can get more money to be spent on infrastructure. But I was wondering what's your opinion as far as the role that Congress can play on the output, as in there's a lot of expenses that are going in in the United States to construction, and construction costs are significantly higher in the yeah. U.S. than abroad, and maybe is there a more economical way we can build infrastructure here to really get a better bang for your buck, let's say? Well, look at, um, you know, that, that's a dimension to the infrastructure equation we, we've never looked at, to, to be totally honest with you. I thought you were going to ask me was, um, and so I'll answer the question I was ready to answer, and then I'll <laughs> work my way through to your question. Uh, I thought you were going to ask me, what about all the, how long it takes to get projects approved, right? Which I do think is a huge problem. We call that the pipeline problem, right? Just creating more money is not, you also got to create an environment where projects can get moving and done and all those kind of things. So we want to work on that. You're, you're putting forth the notion that construction costs for a project are much more expensive in the United States than otherwise. And I have no doubt that that's true. If I was just asked, I would assume it's true. It's about two to, two to three times. Right. So, so the, the components of that obviously are, A, we pay workers more in this country. Uh, which I'm fine with, because I do think we have this middle-skilled employment issue, and you know, I, I, I like the fact that, uh, I like the fact that these jobs actually create, I, I like when we create jobs in this country where if someone gets one of them, they, they're done. So they can say, okay, I have one job, I work 50 hours a week, it's really hard, but at least I can go home and be with my family if I have a family and, and have a normal life. I don't like this two or three job world we're creating for people, we have this, very fast growing number of people in this country work two or three jobs. I mean, it's really bad for society. It's really bad for the fabric of community. You all know this better than I do. So I think one, we pay more, and that's not gonna change. Two, I suspect we do a lot more around safety uh, than other places do, which I'm sure adds a bunch of costs. Thirdly, we don't like to inconvenience our citizens as much as other people do, uh, you know, which, I'm sure, I mean, you know, in China when they want to build something, it's like, you know, the bulldozers coming tomorrow to decide if you want to be in your house or not. Uh, and, uh, you know, we don't do those things here. We got a whole bunch of stuff you got to do, and, you know. But, and then there's probably a bunch of regulatory red tape that's a little duplicative that we don't need. And that's what I would like to target a little bit that's probably raising costs. Materials shouldn't really be, uh, you know, all that different, I wouldn't think. Uh, again, but the labor costs in certain materials are so much cheaper overseas, particularly for heavy stuff. A lot of big heavy stuff we make here uh, because it's too expensive to ship, whereas overseas they make it there, but their labor costs are much lower. So, I, you know, as you can tell from my answer, I haven't really thought about it. I'm just giving you off the top of my head deconstructing what are the cost components of this stuff. Uh, but there's probably some opportunities on, on some of that stuff. So. Uh, under the program, what do you define as infrastructure? And, uh, and is affordable housing part of the infrastructure? So, affordable housing is not. 
I have a whole housing bill, which we could talk about, that talks about some of that stuff. Uh, we wanted to actually make the uh, definition of infrastructure as broad as possible, in part, truth be told, because we wanted to build as big of a support coalition as possible. So if lots of different people think they, they benefit from this, you get a lot more people supporting you. That sounds overly manipulative. That wasn't the only reason we did it, but uh, it, it played into it. You know, but we really tried to be, we wanted all the food groups of infrastructure, but we wanted to be legitimate. So we, obviously transportation, all that stuff, that whole category is in there. Energy, communications, water, and then we put education. Uh, because we do think a bunch more money needs to be spent on state-of-the-art education. And it ties a lot into broadband in rural communities. And the one thing you learn when you're in, you know, I, so my district is right outside of D.C., in suburban Maryland, so it starts right outside of D.C. Uh, and I represent the Washington suburbs, but I also represent Western Maryland, uh, which is a real, I think is a real asset because I represent very rural agricultural communities, which feel like a lot of the communities that my Republican colleagues represent. And I also represent kind of an urban, fast-growing city or the immediate suburb of a fast-growing city. And so I have a pretty good perspective. So, you know, when you think about infrastructure, everyone's got different needs. You know, if you're on the coast and you have a port, that's your infrastructure. Anything to help that port is what you care about. Uh, you know, parts of the country, energy is really big, obviously. So we want to have a broad, as I say, food groups of infrastructure. Yes, my question was basically part of what you just answered about what counts as infrastructure, yeah. because there's a lot of small communities in the country, and I'm thinking of places like in your district, like Cumberland, Maryland, yes. that has lots of roads, yes. lots of schools, lots of water and sewer, but they need people. They need jobs. They need jobs and they need people, and they need things like uh, high-speed internet. Yes. So would all of that come? Communications is included, yeah. yeah. No, you're, you're right. You're familiar with Cumberland, because if you, uh, which I do a lot, if you talk to 100 people in Cumberland who are really thinking about what the community needs, 95 of them would say number one is high speed. Which, again, for those of you who live in cities, you're like, well, of course, that's, that's like, ha I mean, it's not like having water, but it's right getting pretty darn close in terms of being able to function exactly. uh, in a competitive, globally, you know, uh, enabled and technology-enabled society. So, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's included. Uh, in it. And the other thing we wanted to, we wanted to again, both because we think this is important and good policy, but also because we thought this would help get bipartisan support, we really wanted the bill and, and, and what we're creating to be in service to the states and local governments. We didn't want the federal government really having any say in what we call the qualitative aspects of the infrastructure decision. In other words, Wider highway or high-speed rail, that's your decision. You see what I mean? You know, that classic debate that goes on in infrastructure. You know, we were like, whatever the state and local governments want to do, they have their allocation. If the project makes sense financially, they can do it. Thank you. Hi, you're talking about states getting this money? Yes. It seems to me that many of the things you're talking about are really regional or, or broader. Very good question. We, the bill allows for states and local governments to come together and, and, and seek the, the funds so they could actually work together. And we, we think they will, and you know, we're very explicit about their ability to do that. It's a really good question. And the other thing for small communities, we don't have a minimum. So you can, you can apply for a relatively small amount of money from this thing. 
again, I think that's, you know, I think a lot of these minimums get so high that a lot of small communities, you know, I mean, not Cumberland's not a small community, but some places, you know, grants for broadband, or, you know, it's not that much money. I mean, it's a lot of money for them, but it's not, you know, when you're sitting in Washington thinking about, like, expenditures, it's a really small amount. So we wanted the numbers to be uh, really, you know, low numbers to be able to apply. And again, that was also very helpful in the bipartisanship because a lot of my Republican colleagues represent some really small communities. So we feel like they get kind of lined out of these bigger programs. We'll take one last question and then. Uh, and maybe that gentleman too. Oh, so, okay. Two, the young two lady questions. and then the gentleman. Hi, uh, I'm from New Jersey. We have a lot of infrastructure problems. Um, I, I guess one of the questions is, is, is this to replace the transportation, regular transportation funding, like no. Map 21, so this is- Nope, nope, all additive. There, there's no argument you, look at, we have a three, the, the civil engineers think the infrastructure hold is three to four trillion dollars. Now they're the civil engineers, so they have some incentive to make the number bigger. <laughs> but let's say they're, let's say they're exaggerating by, you know, by 50%. We're still talking a really big number. And I think we need lots of tools in the toolkit to fix the problem. So this is designed to be 100% new money into the into the system right we want to kind of we think this will be the you know we think this will really go a long way to solving some of the funding issues and then we'll want to work on some of the other issues like the pipeline development issues and things like that yes sir my question has to do with this authority of this nonprofit how much of them will be how much of their brief is to control what the money is spent for and the standards of it, you, it, it, sort of as if a state or locality had to apply yes. and be approved. Yes. And now that turns this authority into something that says, oh, I don't like your plan to do this. I don't like the fact that you didn't do it this way. So it, it's a good question. I, I break the, in, the decisions down, infrastructure decisions down into kind of qualitative and quantitative, right? The quantitative, is it, is it a good investment? Right, qualitative is what's it like? You know, how is it designed? What are you choosing? This thing will have no qualitative judgment. So as I joke, I, if anyone's here from Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, a couple of, so if Montgomery County wants to build an elevated glass enclosed bike lane down 270, which <laughs> you, some people could, in Montgomery County think it's a joke, but those of you from Montgomery County know that some people might say that's a really good idea. Uh, but it, it made, it, it penciled out, they, they can get the money to do it. Uh, you know, so we, we kind of recognize there'll be some dumb stuff built. You don't spend, because this is $750 billion revolving fund for 50 years, it'll turn like two times. So it's a trillion and a half dollars, it's a lot of money. There'll clearly be some dumb stuff built. You know, you can't have perfect as the enemy of the good on this stuff, right? Because on balance, infrastructure has been a great investment, made us more competitive, put a lot of people to work, and some dumb stuff's been built. So you, you have to assume that'll happen again. So we didn't, I think it's hard to set up enterprises that have multiple purposes, right? We didn't want this to be a design kind of decision of this versus that. We want it to be more of a financial oriented enterprise. So, great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, Congressman Delaney. And, and, and it's not dumb stuff, the uh, glass enclosed bike lane. Aren't, aren't they building in Portland? <laughs> yeah, I, th I think that's yeah, it's under construction right now. Well, um, 
Now let me introduce our panelists for the roundtable discussion. Uh, each of them will make some opening comments, and then we will have a, a group discussion, all of us together. Joining me tonight is um, Ben Hecht. Um, ben, please come on up. Uh, ben is the CEO of Living Cities. Living Cities represents a group of some of the nation's largest foundations and financial institutions working to spur innovation and investment in cities to address social equity and the well-being of low-income communities. Um, you know, this is something that uh, we've heard criticism, actually, on, on uh, the movement on sustainability, that um, uh, we are not addressing social equity as much as we are uh, the environment and the economy. And so to see a, an organization focused on the financing to address social equity is, is certainly uh, worthwhile. Prior to joining Living Cities, Ben was the founder of One Economy Corporation and a senior vice president at the Enterprise Foundation. Um, next, we have John Ram. John is the planning director for the city and county of San Francisco, which I have to say as the former planning director of San Diego, is the fourth largest city in California. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate that. Behind San Diego, which is second, and San Jose, which is third. Uh, San Francisco is at the epicenter of many of the issues at the intersection of private investment and public benefits. John is dealing with both transformative investments from global tech giants with a renewed interest in downtown and the impacts of explosive growth on affordability and equity. John has also served as planning director in Seattle and associate director in Pittsburgh, now working with Paul Farmer in Pittsburgh, who's in the audience. So uh, let's welcome our two panelists. And why don't we begin with um, just an introductory comment from uh, Ben and then John. Okay, great. Well, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, that was a fascinating conversation. Um, but it was also such a great indication of how dysfunctional our country is when you have somebody up there saying, you know, I have the one bill that we can get 100 people to agree on. And really part of what we're about, so we are a 20-plus-year-old collaboration of 22 of the world's leading foundations and financial institutions. And so over those more than two decades, our board, which is made up of, in many cases, on the foundation side, the people who run them, on the, on the uh, financial services side, it's uh, senior people from the institutions. But their idea was that if we really were going to create the, and keep the America that we want to have, somewhat like the congressman said, um, we have to do, we have to be much better at blending public and private dollars, bringing in um, private capital and to get many more zeros to the problems that our country faces. And so uh, we actually had, for our first 15 years, we invested primarily in trying to build an affordable housing industry. From 91 until uh, 2005, we were called the National Community Development Initiative, as some of you uh, may know us by that name. And then we uh, became Living Cities uh, about, uh, about 10 years ago. And, uh, but the idea really was, how do we harness the power of public and private leaders uh, in order to create economic opportunities uh, for low-income people in America's cities? And um, over the last seven years, uh, we've moved really away from the built environment in large part 
uh, from the housing part of the built environment, in large part because it's probably the most mature um, nonprofit sector in the U.S. And you think about, someone talked about, I think you did, Bill, the low-income housing tax credit, the new markets tax credit. Uh, you know, we have an incredibly highly technical bunch of professionals who know how to use, all, you know, you can layer any type of financing public and private to do almost anything that's secured by real estate. But what we haven't been able to do is do that same innovation um, secured by humans um, and actually have the, not only physical revitalization, but the revitalization of, of human capital. We're really at this pivotal time in our country where if you look ahead to 2040, and in some place, anybody here from the, you know, San Antonio, Albuquerque, uh, you know, that part of the country, nobody? Yes, you just don't want to admit it. That's all right. <laughs> um, what we're seeing, you know, by 2040, we will be a majority non-white country. It's just a fact. And in some parts of the country, we're already there. And on, on the trajectory that we're on, that majority will be, have much less income than the current majority, have much less education than the current majority. It'll have much less wealth than the current majority. And we know that wealth is the difference between uh, how we stop intergenerational poverty. And finally, there'll be a lot less free because of our mass incarceration for the last 40 years. And so if we don't dramatically change the trajectory that we're on, meaning if we stop being satisfied with the incremental change, then we are gonna have, we are gonna leave for our children a dramatically different nation than the one that we adopted. And so what we're about is how do we actually help leaders cross sector, private, public, philanthropic, and nonprofit agree that they want to take on ambitious challenges. Um, ones that actually don't have a technical, simple technical solution, but and are going to require public, private dollars, uh, blending of those, uh, people agreeing that we need to be much more focused on results, um, not outputs, but, but outcomes. Um, and that we have an impatience, an urgency of now to see those changes happen much, much faster. Okay, thank you, Ben. And John, I mean, San Francisco is facing one of its uh, most rapid growth periods of several decades, and with Mission Bay uh, centered around technology, and, and I was joking a little bit about uh, San Jose, but with the Google bus of right. people living in San Francisco commuting to Silicon Valley. Tell, Give us your thoughts on, uh, on this topic. Well, I, I think um, it, it is, uh, it's very interesting to talk about this subject, and it's incredibly timely because we've been, um, it, I think every city that I know that is struggling with growth right now is dealing with this problem, where especially older urban areas that are dealing with, with infrastructure that is in some cases 100, 150 years old, that infrastructure needs to be rebuilt. And with the desire of the millennial generation and the baby boom generation to be back in cities, there's this extraordinary demand on our infrastructure, particularly our transportation infrastructure. Uh, and at the same time, and I really appreciated your point about asking whether affordable housing was part of it, because for us, that is an incredible part of the infrastructure um, that we have tried to rely on the public and the private sector a lot to address, because it's, uh, rightly or wrongly, San Francisco now has the distinction of having the highest uh, housing, housing costs in, in the country. Um, what is the median home price? Um, the, median home, the median home price is approaching a million dollars. Um, the, um, we just surpassed New York as the highest priced rental market in the country. And in both cities has about a, have about a 70% rental, 70% uh, of the market is rental. So when their rents are, rents are in excess now of $6 a square foot. 
Um, so it is a, becoming an extraordinary problem for us. And it's exactly what the congressman mentioned. The, the city is becoming um, an enclave of the very wealthy and the very poor. And the middle class is being driven out of the city and actually out of the region. Um, the, the Bay Area, because of the technology focus, has the highest median um, income in the country as well. But that's really skewed by technology salaries, which are, which are skewing that median. Um, so we have, at a local level, been approaching this, the notion of public-private partnerships in a way that is really focused on trying to capture the value created by that demand, right? And for us, and, and the work that I've been doing on this topic, it's primarily around the zoning method, right? So, so we have done extensive planning work over the last 12 years or so, long before I got to San Francisco. Um, I'm looking at areas of the city where growth will naturally occur, areas that where the land is available and it is close to transportation infrastructure, and doing careful plans in those areas to upzone, direct the growth where we want it, but then capture that value back uh, in the form of uh, private, um, and we do, do use this word, uh, exactions for, 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 uh, for affordable housing and for infrastructure and for street and open space improvements. Um, and the most extreme example of that that we're, that we're in the midst of a big fight now with the development community on is, the, is what we call our transit center area around the main terminal in the downtown that is being rebuilt now. Um, and the land value capture over a very substantial upzoning that we did in that area will put about $800 million into the actual transportation infrastructure. Um, now, now, it's important, I think, to remember that, and, and you know, when we first started talking about this a decade ago or, or more, um, I, I actually started it, think, I, I actually en entered it with a fair amount of cynicism because it felt to me like the public sector was reneging on its responsibility to build infrastructure, right? I mean, it's essentially what the congressman was saying, and, and he's right, and I think we can all agree, but, you know, in the 60s when we built the interstate highway system and, the, and the, uh, our transit infrastructure, if the federal government was paying 75 or 80% of those costs, now we're lucky as a region if we get 40% of those costs, right? So we're essentially going it alone. And, um, and I, I, but I, I think there's, that I've come to believe that there's no end in sight to that problem, right? I mean, it, there is, we, we absolutely are going to have to focus more as, I think, as regions, as someone mentioned earlier, um, on these problems and on these issues. And we have to come up with regional solutions to fund our regional infrastructure problems. And I think the zoning mechanism, the mechanism that the congressman is putting forward, um, true public-private pi partnerships on, project, on a project basis um, are ways to do that. If I recall that Transbay Terminal, the entitlement requires a participation in the special tax district for That's infrastructure. Right. The entitlement for the, the, the uh, the high rises essentially around the terminal require participation in what California calls a community facilities district, which is a special tax um, that goes towards the, that can be bonded against, of course, um, and that bond will, that will allow us to generate about $800 million in bond revenue. Ben, what do you see as some of the, uh, the more innovative examples or models in, around the country? Let's say other than California, because California is a little strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I do think that what's, what's really exciting now, um, for those of you who've been in this work for 25, 30 years, like I have, there's always been this hope that, or there's been this expectation that there was going to be this large intergenerational transfer of wealth from, from old rich people to now soon to be young rich people. 
And you know, people talk about it in the hundreds of, of billions of dollars, trillion dollars. And what we're now seeing actually is it's happening. And so the potential of that has turned into reality. It's still on the early curve. If you think about the bell curve, you know, it's still still on the early part of the bell curve, but you're seeing all kinds of signs. And so what is interesting to see is there are more and more opportunities where people are willing to take some risk to put their private dollars, private capital, to public good. And you know, so we've yet to be able to capture it in a, in a more traditional infrastructure type of, uh, uh, of setting, in part because they're not structured to be able to capture that kind of money. But there are some really interesting things that happen on a small scale about crowdfunding, probably even in your own communities, where people are actually raising some pretty interesting amounts of money from you know, hundreds of dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars for, for, for projects. But more importantly, it's uh, something that the congressman referred to, but there's this movement towards what people refer to as social impact bonds. But they're not bonds. They're really, a better term for it is pay for success, is that private people put up the money, and if the, the service is delivered to, a, to get a result, and so you pay, your money pays for success, then you actually get your money back plus a return. And there truly is, so England sort of has been championing this with the public uh, fund that they called the Big Society Fund a couple years ago, but it's really been growing in the U.S. There's been four uh, uh, projects that have closed in the last couple of years. We've invested in two of them. And, and we've invested in them not because we think that these are the greatest things to invest in, but like we did with affordable housing 20 years ago, we wanted to get in on the early stage so we could actually not have 20 years go by before we kind of figured out how to bring in all this money and, and not have a lot of waste, you know, have to be more efficient. And so we've come into that and they already, the, the structures of those have already changed dramatically. Um, but it's clear that what's driving some of this demand are actually uh, private wealth parts of large financial institutions because their customers want some of their portfolios going into these public good investments with their private money. Let me ask, because you, you both have, um, you, you're, you're in this part of the country, and, and, um, and John, uh, you, you've worked in uh, Pittsburgh, and how do, you, how do you address this in markets that are not growing, in markets that are contracting? Um, and because that's a different, that's a different animal. It, it, it's definitely a different animal. I mean, I don't, I don't it, it, and it's a tougher question to answer in some ways. I think, you know, my sense is that you look at it, um, even in even in markets that are not growing within uh, sub areas, there's typically growth within a region, right? In some parts of a region, even Detroit, in my hometown, which is my hometown, has growth in some parts of that region, right? Um, and I think it needs to be captured, and, and that's why I think this is a regional issue. Um, and it, it is very. Um, in, in, in slow growth markets, um, what is often happening is that the population and the economic changes are simply being shifted from one part of the region to another. Um, and, I think, and I think a regional strategy that's building on what the congressman is talking about is actually one way of addressing that and using it, capturing the value created by that growth in certain parts of the region would be a way to do that. But it would require a different way of thinking in, in, in our region. And, and we see some really extraordinary innovation happening. I mean, I actually am one of the most bullish people on Detroit mm -hmm. right now because in many ways, 
for the last 10 years, the, 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 part, the public part of Detroit has looked more and more dysfunctional, but the, the non-public part of Detroit, which has been um, some of the business community, certainly philanthropy has been, uh, the, the, re the revitalization of Detroit has been driven largely by philanthropy, which is the money that was made 100 years ago in Detroit is going back into Detroit, but in a very different way through philanthropy. Um, but some of the most interesting innovation and some of the most interesting kind of uh, public-private partnerships are actually happening in Cleveland, Detroit. I mean, Pittsburgh is actually a, a great success story uh, if you look over the last 20 years. Um, you know, it was, if you think about Seattle, you were in Seattle. Seattle and New York, 30, 35 years ago, were written off. They, they were on the edge of bankruptcy. Nobody would want to live there. That's like yesterday. You know, and so, you know, we have an incredible power as a nation to, to, uh, to revitalize ourselves. Um, I think we have, it does take political leadership. I think, unfortunately, the biggest challenge when you see the dysfunction, not that the congressman is the height of function, but when you see, you know, the dysfunction that he has to fight, it actually saps the morale of the American people who then say, oh, well, you know, if they can't agree on the most simple things, then how could we ever you know, figure it out, and I think that's, that's part of the challenge. But we work in cities for the main reason that basically cities don't have the dysfunction in most cases. You know, there's obviously not everybody's perfect, but there's very little political. Uh, mayors, you know, you hear many, many mayors say, you know, picking up the garbage and filling potholes is not a Republican or Democratic thing. We solve problems, and we solve them every day because we know our neighbors who we're trying to solve them. And, that's why, while we wish that states and the feds, you know, for, certainly we wish the feds were, were more, much more functional, we wish states were, were more functional than they are, many of them, but we see cities as the place that you really can see change happen. And we also know that where people, in, when it comes to philanthropy, people put their money in two ways. One, in, pla <coughs> excuse me, in places, and the other is in issues. You know, and so the power of cities to attract um, dollars or, or regions to attract dollars have been proven because people want to reinvest in the places that they care about. And I think if I could add to that, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about if you look at that history in Pittsburgh and some of the older industrial cities is, is those, I mean, Pittsburgh kind of invented public partnerships right. back in the late 40s, right? Um, and I think it was a combination of two things that, that came together. One is a group of civic-minded CEOs, which I think is partly what you're talking about, yep. the Dan Gilberts of, of their time. Absolutely. Um, and, and also the realization that investing in their city made sense for them yep. economically, right? I mean, and I think that's really what the congressman is getting at. There's a, there's a realization that, that, the, that those companies aren't going to make it unless Detroit improves or Pittsburgh improves right. or Cleveland improves. Yeah. yeah and Cincinnati, I believe, has a very interesting model too that's yes. supported by um, foundations, uh, long established foundations. We're facing this in California where with the demise of redevelopment a few years ago, it was such a powerful tool that at least in my opinion, uh, we got a little lazy right. about just relying on that tool and not looking at the other ways of doing community yep. and uh, urban regeneration. I think a message that's really important for, for this audience is that we are in the midst of redefining the civic infrastructure around the country. I mean, I, I do think in many ways the civic infrastructure that lasted up until 70s and 80s was largely corporate CEOs, mostly old white men, 
you know, and now the old white men are dead or gone, but more importantly, those CEO, those companies are gone. You know, and, and in most cities in America, I mean, I, one of the places I was very active as a young professional was Cleveland. And there was a thing called Cleveland Tomorrow. Anybody here from Cleveland? Yeah, right, so Cleveland Tomorrow was these great, this was in the early 90s still. There were, the, it was 100 leading uh, uh, CEOs from uh, Fortune 500 companies. And there's literally like five left in the, in, in the Cleveland region. You know, and so what's happening is that leaders are coming together and essentially saying, we have to build the 21st century civic infrastructure. And it's university presidents, it's planning directors, it's mayors, it's foundation heads, and it's people who didn't necessarily have a point of view about what has to happen. They just kind of let it happen and reacted, basically realizing if I don't have a point of view and I don't step up, who is? Uh, we'll take questions from the audience, so perhaps if you have a question, step up to the mic. Let me ask one more, and then, then we'll um, go to it. As, uh, the, uh, the Public Utilities in San Francisco does formal triple bottom line analysis for their investments. Uh, do you as a city, with your capital improvement plan, do triple bottom line? Or, Ben, have you seen other examples elsewhere where they're looking at both the return on the capital first, but also the, uh, the social equity impact and the environmental benefits. Uh, Bill is referring to this, the, the, the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, which operates our, our water and sewer system, but also a, a fair amount of power in the region. Um, and they do, they do a formal triple bottom line <coughs> analysis of their work, um, and it's really worked in, extraordinarily well. We are, we are, the rest of the city needs to catch up, to, to answer your question directly. We're not quite there. Um, and it's particularly challenging with our transportation agency um, and, and because they have, the, they have such a, a backlog of, of need right now. And of the 10 largest transit agencies in the country, they're the only one that average speed of vehicles is less than 10 miles an hour. Um, and so we have, we, have the, this, we have a huge state of good repair problem. So there, there's a major bond measure on the ballot this fall for, for them just, just to get them caught up to the basic fundamentals of what they need to do. But the triple bottom line is something that as a, I said, well, one of, the, one of the interesting things that San Francisco does is that there's a group of department heads who sit on what's called the Capital Planning Committee. And we are urging, we are kind of slowly moving the city in the direction of all departments, kind of considering the, the triple bottom line in our analysis. And to give you an example of result, you might, let's say, you're planning a stormwater system. Well, that stormwater system could also be a linear park uh, that could also have uh, uh, bikeway connections uh, that can connect uh, lower-income neighborhoods to um, uh, job centers uh, through different forms of transportation plus apply recreation and be environmentally sustainable while addressing stormwater uh, engineering issues. So, And one of the challenges that large public bureaucracies like San Francisco have, and we are larger than many because we're both a city and a county, um, is, is working across departmental and agency boundaries, right? So one of the things that we're trying to do is get the PUC working together with the Parks Department because the Parks Department is still watering, as an example, watering Golden Gate Park with potable water, <laughs> a thousand acres. And so it's kind of, this is crazy. I'm like, we need to move beyond that. So I realize this is not a, a simple question, but it's clear that mayors uh, understand that investing in communities and infrastructure is not a partisan issue. And mayors are doing great work. Uh, you, you have been doing it uh, nationally and at the local level. What 
do you think needs to happen to translate that to Congress? Because they clearly do not get that, and it's an unfortunate uh, political environment now for investing in our infrastructure and communities. I can speak loudly, right? Can you hear me? Um, you know, the, the, the real challenge is, there's twofold challenge. I mean, one obviously is the way Congress people change their opinions is when their constituents actually make them change their opinion or, or they get thrown out. You know, and, and but, but the other problem is that a lot of what's happened over the last bunch of years has been the gerrymandering, which makes that so unlikely to happen. You know, so we have this, this twofold, you know, we're stuck in a kind of twofold way. Um, but but I, I do believe that, thank you. I, I, we're going to try every single one. I'm working again. I do believe ultimately that. Um, what has to happen is people have to speak up, and whether it's through their Congress people or whether I mean I've lived in this town for 30 years, and I've seen times when you know a president leads in 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 ways that the president doesn't necessarily have authority, you know, gets Congress to act. I've seen people lead, you know, through you know uh, uh, filling the mall all with people numbers of times, you know, and then I've seen people get thrown out in whole Congresses get replaced. And I, I do ultimately think our democracy only works when the people force it to. Also, I think it's uh, when you uh, see infrastructure that crosses congressional districts, and so you have um, constituents in multiple districts that care about some infrastructure, such as regional transportation, or um, uh, then it's at a local level, if you can demonstrate that bipartisan support for something, then the electeds uh, can, uh, will come along. And I also think they'll, they'll come along if the private corporate community yeah. nudges them along as well, right? I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I think uh, sort of expanding on the last idea is uh, the issue of regionalism. Uh, in some ways, some of the regions that we're thinking about today are a little too small mm -hmm. because, uh, first of all, uh, they're pegged to the census definition of a region. So a metropolitan planning organization will sit next to another MPO, uh, and there's really not much interaction between and among them. Uh, the example I'm thinking of is Baltimore and Washington, D.C., uh, where, in some sense, uh, they're really one region but they're treated as different regions for a lot of investment decisions. Uh, you know, there's, uh, th there's no idea of how to handle some of those uh, meta-regional issues uh, because of the way that we've structured our funding mechanisms. Yeah, in, in California, I think uh, most of the MPOs are also co um, COGS, right? Mm -hmm. Part of the Council of Governments. And under our state laws, are required to do regional sustainable community strategies. So they can be very large regions to try to address some of those issues. And when you look at Portland or Seattle, you know, I don't know if it's through a region, but state laws, the urban limit lines, uh, help direct some of that conversation about a regional solution. Yeah, and I think that's right. I, I think that it's a little more challenging when, those re when the regions cross state boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
I, I do think I don't, I don't know I don't know what's working, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I do I do think that we are going to see very different. We're already seeing, but we're going to see more and more of very different organizational structures that we're just not used to seeing before. I mean, there was actually a great um, uh, Dan Carroll, who works for the governor in uh, Oregon, put together this California Oregon Washington Infrastructure Fund last year or two years ago to try to basically deal with that, the challenge of that, and getting to enough scale where they could go to capital markets. But I, one of many very different ways that uh, public and private entities are organizing themselves differently. The, um, well, before you come up, what's the role of planning in all of this? <laughs> oh, we just, we just as, as, as a colleague of mine used to say, we're just, we just go around planting petunias. <laughs> <laughs> Making things pretty. Um, you know, I, I, I think we're I think we're absolutely integral to the to the to the issue because of the issue of growth, because of how we're managing growth and how we're managing change in our regions and in our cities, right? And so, and so for us, it's been all about kind of focusing that growth where it made the most sense and where the infrastructure can be focused most efficiently. You know, it just struck me with what you said, um, managing change, and then said managing growth, which would be perspective from the Bay Area, but really it's, maybe instead of growth management, it should have been called change management. Change management. Because that's really what it is, because change can go in both directions, or even even if a population is staying the same, but they're aging, or, or their demographic characteristics are changing, or their economic situation is changing, um, planning is involved in change. Yes? I'd like to follow up on the previous question. Uh, I live in Cleveland now. I work for NOACA, which is the Metropolitan Planning Organization for Greater Cleveland. And over the last two and a half years, prior to this year, I was working on Vibrant Neo 2040, which was a project funded by the Sustainable Communities Partnership Grant out of the feds. This was to get the three major metropolitan planning organizations over a 12-county region of Northeast Ohio Eastgate, where Youngstown is located, uh, Noaka, where Cleveland and its suburbs are located, and also the folks to the south of us, um, the Akron metropolitan area, to work together. And one thing that we found is that we have a lot of cross-metropolitan area commuting going on, and yet the transportation agencies are all relegated to individual counties. How do we address that? That's one of the issues we're struggling with now. How do we address bringing people and jobs closer together when the transit agencies are divided and yet the people are commuting across those boundaries? <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> well, I think no, it's, it's such a great it's such a great example about the, so so a friend of mine, Matt Miller, wrote this book called uh, "The Tyranny of Dead Ideas." I don't know if anybody read it. Right, and, and his politics is, uh, uh, is a little to the left of mine, but so his solutions I don't necessarily agree with, but the idea is a great one, which is we are tyrannized by dead ideas, right? That a lot of our structures were built 100 years ago, and like, like the, the way we deal with transit, or like we, the way we deal with planning, you know, the MPOs and whatnot, and we can't get out of our own way, you know? And, and so what we do is we come up with solutions that just Velcro, uh, you know, sort of a, 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 a solution to a, to a very broken problem, 
and hope that you know if we just keep putting stuff on top of it, maybe it'll go away instead of like getting to the core, you know. And and getting to the core requires leadership, and and um, and and the, that's where I do think you know. So I've, I'm not a planner, you know. But but I, but I will say I I think that in today's society, we lack leadership. And one of the things that plan I would urge planners to do is actually provide more leadership. Just having an opinion, a professional opinion, is different than being a leader. Yeah. And, and I do think the only way we get around these problems is if leaders from different, unusual bedfellows, you know, the, the, the different leaders from the different places saying, you know what, this is ridiculous, you know, the way that we have to make decisions about transit because we're stuck with these county-driven no, I, I think that's right. I mean, as somebody mentioned it earlier, the regions aren't aren't defined large largely enough, right? So we have we have commuting sheds that are going well beyond quote a region, and so we have you know in 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 the Bay Area there are you know Bay Area is defined by the nine counties that touch the Bay, but there's commuting going on beyond those nine counties now. Um, the one thing, I, and and even within the nine counties, there are I think something like 27 different transit entities. Right, um, and so and, and, yeah, and so nobody is responsible for the connections between them, which is just enormously problematic. But I will say that our metropolitan transportation entity is, in terms of leadership, is really pushing hard on that issue and forcing us to work together. And that it really does take, and I and I become a huge believer in this, and that and that these issues will only be addressed at a regional level more than even at a state or federal level, or it, that will be addressed at a regional level. In, in the San Diego region, uh, which is one county, but it's a large county, it's the size of Connecticut or Western Massachusetts, um, there are two transit agencies, but the transit agencies do operations. The transit planning is done by the COG, the Council of Governments, that also has a regional planning responsibility since the 1990s, early 1990s. They don't have um, land use authority, but they're a coordinating agency of the different land use plans, and, and they're required to prepare a regional comprehensive plan tied to the regional transportation plan. And, they pro and they're the MPO, so they also provide the money and manage the local source money for transportation. And so their carrot is the transportation dollar. Uh, that was put in by the voters. It was a referendum. It wouldn't have happened if it was just up to the uh, local governments. Let's see, la uh, timing-wise, uh, what, last question? Okay, one last question, then we're going. Uh, do you think this is a planning issue, an engineering issue, a public finance issue, a political issue? And depending upon how you define the, the problem, you define the solution or your approach to the solution. So. Where should we go? To the uh, planner, to the engineer, to the public finance, to the politicians, in order to, to advance this issue? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, it is a problem at all those levels. And I don't, in a way, I mean, I, I think, first of all, as, as Bill was implying earlier, of course, he has to say this as president of APA, <laughs> planners have to be at the table, right? And this is not, and often in many communities, we're not. I mean, that's a huge problem in and of itself. Um, but secondly, I mean, I think we have to get beyond this notion that, that we each have these kind of circumscribed, circumscribed areas of responsibility and start being comfortable crossing boundaries between our expertise 
areas of expertise and our specialties and understandings because otherwise we're going to be stuck in that same old game of I'm a planner, I only deal with land use regulations and you're an engineer, you deal with transportation and you're a finance person and you deal with public finance. We, we, we have to start speaking each other's language and I think what I'm finding is that that's happening at the local level more than it is at the state or federal level. Is that the cities are getting that in a very big way and, and the really interesting mayors who are becoming leaders on this issue are forcing us to the table to have that discussion. And I, I, think, uh, I think our role or responsibility as planners is to articulate common sense. Um, because a lot of these issues, when you break it down, is really turf battles amongst um, different constituencies or agencies or disciplines. And since we approach things as comprehensive planners, we know how the dots connect. And I think that's, that's probably our role. And I'm getting the uh, cut uh, in the back, and, and we have some uh, reception, some wine out here. So I want to thank our speakers, and uh, thank you. good conversation. Thank you for coming.